What's good, everybody? I'm John Zastrzemski, host of New York, New York with JJ, the first podcast on The Ringer and Spotify dedicated to you, the New York sports fan. We've got episode three nights a week, plus bonus episodes whenever news breaks. So make sure you follow the show on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome back, everybody. This is Larry Wilmore, and you are listening to Black on the Air. Appreciate you choosing this podcast. Um, very, very, guys, another special episode. We've had nothing but special episodes this year. You know, David Copperfield. Uh, I mean, it's just been episode after episode of just good stuff. And today I get to share with you one of the things that I love. And that thing is called the Beatles. I'm a big Beatles fan, you guys. Um, I'll talk about that. Um, in a second as to how that came about. And we are talking to Jabez uh, Olson, who's the editor for the behind the scenes look of the Beatles documentary, Let It Be, called Get Back, which is on Disney Plus, um, directed by Peter Jackson. This is supposed to be a theatrical movie, but there was so much material, they decided to make it like a three part um, kind of limited series documentary on Disney Plus. Um, Six hour plus kind of thing. I'm so excited about this. I've been waiting so long. Get back, you guys. Uh, so we got a little Beatles gift this holiday, <laughs> which is nice. Okay, but before we get to that, I wasn't going to talk about anything, to be honest with you. I wanted this to be a little nice holiday pod. Just talk about the Beatles. Let's have some fun. But uh, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict came down. And, uh, you know, a lot of people very upset with it. Some people are very happy with it. Once again, these types of trials are kind of kind of showing one of the divides that we have in this country. The uh our red state, blue state, left right kind of divide. And this one is very peculiar. Um I had a point of view on this that was kind of a flip point of view, and it really has nothing to do with the trial that much. Um, I, I tweeted it out the other day. I love when people get mad at my tweets, by the way. Uh, I just tweeted if I said, even if Kyle, uh, well, let me just say this. A lot of people were saying, see, if he was black, this wouldn't have happened. 
you know, he would have been guilty. And I said, look, this is what I tweeted. Even if Kyle Rittenhouse had been black, I'm convinced today's verdict would still be not guilty. The only difference is it'd be the verdict for the cop standing trial for killing the black Kyle Rittenhouse. You know, <laughs> not everybody appreciated that tweet. You know, and a lot of people did, too. So that's kind of kind of my general take on it. And let me explain that a little bit more. And by the way, I actually don't have a huge take on this thing. I'm sick and fucking tired of that whole thing, that Kyle Rittenhouse thing. I wasn't that interested when it happened, to be honest with you. Um, I felt it was a distraction from, you know, a lot of what was going on last summer. You know, it just seemed like, what the fuck is that kid doing out there with that, with that gun that's so ridiculous with that rifle? And, uh, you know, but for, you know, this is another one of those things that has divided us. And it's, it's such a bizarre division, this one. So I'm trying to see if I can, uh, yeah. So on one side, and these are generalizations, this is not how everybody feels. So I'm, I'm generalizing. On one side, we have the left who views uh, Kyle Rittenhouse as a villain. Many people say he's like this white supremacist who, I guess, like some kind of racist Elmer Fudd going out to try <laughs> try to mow down <laughs> Black Lives Matter protesters. I guess it's like, be very quiet. I'm going to hunt me some Black Lives Matter. <laughs> That's my Elmer Fudd. Thank you very much. Uh, and on the right, for some reason, they see him as a hero, you know, this protector of property, you know, God bless, at least this kid went out and tried to do the right thing and some kind of hero. So I have no stake on either of these sides, to be honest with you. Um, I don't know if he's a white supremacist. I don't even know if that's necessarily relevant from what I saw and everything. And this trial is one of those bizarre trials because, you know, I don't even know if you can be mad at the jury. I think given the evidence they had and what they had to deal with, not guilty is probably the best they could come back with, you know, especially since the charge of the firearm, the firearm charge, I think it was of possessing an illegal firearm, something like that was kind of thrown out by the judge who deserves his own reality show. Also. So all that stuff is not my point of view on this, you know, like I said, I tweeted out that, but there's a, another point here. And, you know, sometimes it feels like I'm picking on the left in these situations. So I'm going to pick on the right on this one. Uh, because the left, I think, is very consistent in what they're mad at in these situations. Um, the overall thing being is that, you know, from the left, they see this white kid with this gun being able to walk the streets and the police treating him a certain way. And we feel like, you know, a person of color would not get that same red carpet treatment. And I completely agree with that. Completely, you know. Um, and there's a another point to extrapolate from that, which I think is interesting, is the whole vigilante aspect of this. I, for the life of me, guys, I do not understand why the right wants this, this 17-year-old, a 17-year-old at the time, why they want this person to be some kind of hero? What the fuck is that? Let's take all this, take everything else out of it. Just look at it for what it simply is. There's a riot going on and people are looting. There's fires being started. It looks very dangerous. You know, uh, anger is really high because of what 
went on with George Floyd and everything. And let's say you're a parent, your 17 year old wants to go to that city and grab a firearm that is not his, you know, is it will actually be an illegal possession of it or, but I guess not a parent to that, but this firearm and go walk the streets and act like, and because he wants to protect some property that he has no stake in that isn't his. What the fuck? Seriously? What parent would, would say that that is okay? I don't understand that. And looking at that, you're looking at a minor with this firearm walking into trouble. Trouble is going to happen. If you, you are a target yourself, if, if you are walking down the street with that, with all the stuff going on, cause there's going to be, there's, there's well many people in these things, but there are definitely going to be crazy people too, right? And you are a target with that type of thing. What the fuck do you, are you talking about? You're going out to protect something. It doesn't even make sense. And if you're really going out because you want to help clean up stuff and everything, there's a time to do that that is a lot safer and, you know, is a, a better time to do that. But I don't buy the protect property aspect of this. Look, if you're an adult and it is your property that you're trying to protect, different story. I would have a completely different opinion about this. I feel there is nothing wrong with people trying to protect their property. Here's where I differ with some people on the left. People on the left, and for some reason why they took this turn, I have no idea, have completely dismissed the value of property, have rendered property valueless. And they use a false uh, equation to say, well, property isn't as important as a human life. Motherfucker, whoever... That's your fucking equation. That's not the equation that exists. Property was never meant to be the same as human life. Everybody knows that they're different. But did it ever occur to you that property can be important to some human lives? Did that ever occur to you? That people may have poured their life savings and their life's work into properties? Like their houses or their, their businesses, churches, mosques, those types of things? Properties are important to human lives. No, no motherfucker says they're the same as human life or they're equal to. Therefore, you have the right to destroy them. You have the right. You feel like you have the right to destroy them because they're not yours. If we're honest about that, that's where that's coming from. So someone protecting their own property, and especially when it's their life, their life savings or whatever, of course they have the right to do that. And of course I have compassion for that. So why the left does not value pro property at all is beyond me. I will never understand that. On the other hand, why the right thinks that a child should be a fucking vigilante and assume he's some property master, <laughs> you know, he's some property security guard for, you know, these things that he has no connection to is beyond me. He's putting not only himself, but other people in danger who might be out there for good reasons, doing the right thing. And of course, you know, and of course two people get shot or three. I don't even know what the number was. Of course that's going to happen. What do you think's going to happen? This is the ultimate, if you're a drama student, this is the ultimate Chekhov's gun. You introduce the gun in the first act, that gun is going to be used in the third. This is a Chekhov's gun situation. You bring that gun to this situation, you better believe that gun is going to be used. So 
This whole obsession with vigilantism on the right really troubles me. It's in the Ahmaud Arbery case. These two stupid motherfuckers, well, three of them, because one chasing him. And this, by the way, is completely racist as far as I'm concerned. And this, this is connected to the whole history of racism, especially in the South. This is where lynchings and all that kind of stuff, where white people uh, feel they can just chase black people or what they call suspects and just administer the law themselves. And we know the long history of that. So the Amon Arbery case is just a fucking shame. I mean, I don't know why these people just didn't plead guilty. And let me tell you something. Now, that case I am interested in. I really wasn't interested in that Kyle Rittenhouse case. The Ahmaud Arbery case I am very much interested in because that is fucked up. That kid did not deserve to be treated like that. Ugh, it's such a shame. But, once again, vigilantism that is supported on the right. They are There are crickets on the right about that Ahmaud Arbery case. Crickets, because they know that shit is wrong. They know that shit is wrong. There are crickets about that. And it doesn't even occur the vigilantism that's going on on the right. It's not even occurring in these types of things. It's it's being sneaked into situations like that Texas abortion law that we've talked about. Where, you know, they are taking the responsibility away from the state to enforce this law because they know that won't hold up. Especially if it goes up to the Supreme Court because it's legal to get an abortion. So they've put the power to adjudicate this into the hands of private citizens. Abortion vigilantes is basically what they have created in Texas. Abortion vigilantes. They're after your wombs, ladies. Private, you talk now an abortion, Elmer Fudd. That's really fucked up. I'm not even going to do that impression. That is really fucked up. So I just don't get it. You know, my whole takeaway from this is why is the right obsessed with vigilantism? What the fuck is going on? Especially with a minor, you know, for some. You know, for something that isn't even his, why they're obsessed with this just seems completely wrong to me. And um, let's hope this doesn't continue and get bigger. I have a sense that for whatever reason, it's turning into it's going to turn into something even more ugly. So we'll see. I hope not. But we shall see. Anyhow, I've talked to you about trying to have some gratitude this year. Uh, It's been a tough year and all that stuff. And filling my stuff up with positive things as much as possible. And this episode is one of those things I wanted to share with you guys. Um, I guess I want to talk about why the Beatles are so, I don't know, why they mean so much to me. Um, I had a lot of, uh, or, you know, let me put it a different way. I'll just tell you a little bit more about myself and the things that I love, you know. So I already shared with you magic. It's one of those things when I was a little kid, always loved, you know. And, um, but... I've had different kind of uh, uh, love at first sight, kind of falling down the rabbit hole things with with uh, figures in history and that kind of stuff. And the first one was when I was a kid was Houdini. When I first learned about Houdini, I could not get enough. I read every book there was about Houdini. I don't know what it was. It just struck me in a certain way. I just, I wanted to understand why this person was so famous, what made him so big, you know? And it was more than the magic. Yeah, I was interested in the magic and everything, but... I just could not stop being obsessed with Houdini. I wanted to know everything about him. That movie with um, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee is still one of my all-time uh, favorite movies. It just, you know, it had a magical effect on me. The second one of those types of things, I was a little older, was the Marx Brothers. Um, my father took 
us to see the Marx Brothers on the big screen. It was a revival that they had. And um, they were playing with W.C. Fields. And, man, I fell hard for the Marx Brothers. They were so funny to me. Once again, like Houdini, I read everything I could about the Marx Brothers, watched every movie, memorized the movies. I remember I had a surgery once in high school. It was a... It wasn't a major surgery. It was more like an observation type of thing. But they had to put me under. As I'm going under, I'm reciting the entire movie Animal Crackers, which I had memorized. Uh, I had a little tape recorder whenever to come on TV. I was and still am a huge Marx Brothers fan, huge Houdini fan. These love affairs never go away. Okay. I had another flirtation with Buster Keaton in the comedy thing. A friend of mine introduced me to Buster Keaton in college. And he had these 16 millimeter prints, and we would, uh, uh, after classes, go over to his house and watch Buster Keaton. This is in my college days, and I went down the Buster Keaton rabbit hole, you know. And still to this day, you know, Buster Keaton, whenever I see it on TV or whatever, I have to check it out, you know. All right, so those are all kind of in a certain category. But the biggest one of them all, and the most unexpected, is the Beatles. And when I was a kid, you know, that's when the Beatles were huge and, you know, sensation, all that stuff. But, you know, Beatles music was around me, but I didn't care that much to me. You know, we listened to a lot of different music in my house. My father was into jazz and, you know, a lot of the current black music that was around, especially the Atlantic uh, records, Motown, all that kind of stuff. And he had a lot of records and would play them and that stuff. It was just great listening to that. So a lot of that other pop music I would hear in the background, but it wasn't really a part of my life or my experience. You know, coming to the 70s, all that stuff, I was, you know, I wasn't into any of the rock and that kind of stuff. You know, I was more into, you know, the soul music and, you know, funk when that came around and disco, all that kind of stuff, you know. And after John Lennon was was shot and you know of course i knew who john Lennon was i remember the beatles but i really didn't know that much about the beatles but and the only songs i knew that were in my head that were beatles songs were probably yesterday <laughs> yellow submarine <laughs> you know it's so pathetic and probably let it be i remember liking let it be a lot when it came out i thought that was a a very cool song so that's all i had with the beatles so after john Lennon died i remember uh it's about maybe uh six months or so my brother was playing a cassette in his car. He put it in, and it was the Beatles live at the Hollywood Bowl. I don't know why he had that, but he started playing it. And I was listening to it, and the reaction from the crowd was crazy. And I'm like, whoa, man. And it brought me back to when I was a kid, because even though I didn't pay attention to it, it was around me, and I had a sense of Beatlemania and all that stuff even though I wasn't really caring about it. I was too young and all that. But hearing the reaction to the crowd, it did to me what, when I first read about Houdini and that other stuff, it sucked me in. And I was like, what is going on here? What is this phenomena? You know, why are they going crazy like that? And so I went down a Beatles rabbit hole. This is in the early 80s, right? And what I did, and I was so happy that I did it this way, you guys. And I encourage a friend of mine to do it too. And I'll tell you, by the way, if you are not into the Beatles, I'm going to recommend you do this and you will be into the Beatles. I went to the first Beatles album, okay? And at that time, um, they weren't even on compact disc yet. So I had to go buy the albums. And I bought the English albums 
first. Not the American versions, but the English albums, I think I got first. I believe so. Because I wanted to listen to the Beatles in the order that they evolved, like from start to finish. So I didn't just start listening to just a, a playlist of Beatles music. I kind of went, I went in chronological order. So I kind of had an experience of the Beatles, if that makes sense. Guys, I have to tell you, oh my God, I was like, what is this? How have I never heard this? And I fell in love with the Beatles music. It was, it just caught me. And I, I saw this um, um, documentary on the Beatles that Malcolm McDowell uh, hosted. And it was great. And I, what was the name of it? I can't remember. But it's one of the best I've ever seen. And not only did the music capture me, but the Beatles themselves <laughs> captured me. You know, in the documentary, I thought they were hilarious. You know, they were, in fact, in their movie, Hard Day's Night, they were compared to the Marx Brothers, which is ironic. I found them very witty, very charming, just like everybody else. But I was just caught up in it. But I have to tell you, going through every album, I had an appreciation for not just the Beatles, but music in a way that I hadn't before. And I think it hit me at the right time because I I got to spend time with an, uh, a group these artists who evolved in a really fast amount of time. And they could have just been the Beatles that they were in the beginning. The she loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They could have just been those Beatles and they would have been amazing. But those Beatles that turned into the rubber soul Beatles that evolved into the Sergeant Pepper's Beatles that took, you know, a trip into the magical mystery tour and the Hey Jude Beatles, and then <laughs> said goodbye to us as the Abbey Road Let It Be Beatles is a fucking amazing journey. And guys, even if you are a casual Beatles fan, if you do what I did and you go through this journey, it really is amazing. So I just wanted to share that with you and let you know why I'm such a big Beatles fan. Now, the movie Let It Be... I'll give you a little background before we talk to uh, JBS. I talked to him a couple of days ago. Such a fun conversation. So the movie Let It Be was kind of this documentary about the Beatles making their album Let It Be, which is um, pretty much how it was presented to the public. It was actually shot a year earlier, and it was shot before they did their last album, which was Abbey Road. But Abbey Road ended up coming out before Let It Be, and by the time Let It Be came out, the Beatles were breaking up, and then this movie, this documentary was kind of like the inside look to the Beatles' breakup. That's kind of how it was presented. So you thought you were watching a documentary about the Beatles breaking up. And it was kind of dour. It was <laughs> it was very tense. The movie was shot on 16mm, blown up to 35, so it even had a grainy look. And it was kind of a downer, I'll be honest with you. Remember, the first Beatles movie was A Hard Day's Night. You know, very positive, up, funny, and for the last thing the Beatles to give us was this movie, Let It Be. The fans were like, um, okay, Beatles, that's what you're going to leave us with. All right, we don't, okay, if that's what you got, you know. And it kind of just left a bad taste in people's mouths, you know, if you're a Beatles fan. So this uh, Peter Jackson having the opportunity to go back and reinterpret what that moment actually was and by producing this footage, giving us this footage, all this footage that was taken during the Let It Be sessions, we now get a different opinion of what was really going on, and it's gorgeous, you guys. 
um, I got to see a preview from uh, Disney. And this movie, Get Back, is so gorgeous. It's so amazing. And if you're a Beatle nut like I am, you will appreciate all the uh, the looks, the sounds, the way the Beatles act together. And it's just great. It does your heart good. And so I wanted to share that with you guys <laughs> a little bit, a little bit insight as to some of the things that I love and why I love um, this conversation that you're about to listen to right now. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. All right, everybody, uh, welcome back for our special holiday Black in the Air broadcast, bringing to you one of the things that I love. In this case, the thing that I love is the Beatles, guys. I told you this. And uh, it is a privilege and it's a pleasure to uh, speak to the editor of this amazing project. Um, and he has collaborated with Peter Jackson before on the Hobbit series, Lord of the Rings, King Kong, and the amazing WW1 doc, uh, They Shall Not Grow Old. Um, Javis Olson, welcome to Black on the Air, my friend. Hi, Larry. Thanks. <laughs> it's so nice to meet you. I, I say my friend, but I just met you, but I feel like I'm we're friends yeah, already. It's nice to meet you too. It's so nice to meet you, uh, coming to us from beautiful New Zealand. I have not been to New Zealand yet, and I really want to go. I've heard it's just gorgeous. I mean, when this whole COVID thing finally... Yeah, I was going to say... Come on down, but you will have to spend a week or two in quarantine at the moment to get in. But that wouldn't be uh, bad. I, I mean, if I'm quarantining in New Zealand, I'm not mad at that. You know, just to get away from everything. It, it adds a bit of time to your holiday, though. Yes, exactly. Well, congratulations on get back. Thank you. What an amazing accomplishment! How does it feel right now? Is it all kind of? It, like, it's all a bit surreal to have it yeah. largely over because it's been you know three three or more years of. Yeah. Uh, Sitting in little dark rooms, you know, living in January 1969, really, yes. just um, watching hours and hours of footage and uh, trying to find a story. Yeah, it must have been amazing. Were you a Beatles uh, fan before you started? Yes, this project yes, I was, which is mm -hmm. is lucky because uh, yeah, I, if you weren't, it might have been a bit, <laughs> yes. bit of a tough. It might have been torture, probably. Yeah, Although yeah, yeah. I think I think it, the footage might have won most people over, even if yeah. you know they hadn't started off as fans. It's the, you know, the music's just so great and the guys yeah. have, you know, such personalities and charm that yeah. I think, you know, <laughs> everyone will end up being a fan once they see it. It is amazing to me, JB. And, you know, I mean, of course, I am a huge Beatles fan and I just, I love the Beatles, but they, there is a charm and a magic and there's a, there's this alchemy that's there that it does transcend time and it's uh and you see it when they're playing together and they're having fun and it comes through 
in the playing of the songs and the joy of it. And it also, it's like it lasted on the vinyl. That spirit yeah. still comes across in yeah. the music today. It's fascinating, isn't it? It, it is. It's, you know, it's, um, it's uh, you know, it's lightning in a bottle, you know, it's, um, yeah. it's very hard to recreate the, the, the magic that went into this band. What was uh what kind of went through your mind? Tell me about when you were first presented this project. Uh, did, uh, Peter Jackson himself, uh, uh, talk to you and say, Hey man, I'm, uh, I was talking to Apple. They want to do this thing and yeah. sound like something well, you want we to were, do. We were probably still finishing up the, the last documentary we did, which was the World War I film, They Shall Not Grow Old. And I think um, I was in New Zealand and uh, Peter had gone across to London for some meetings, mm-hmm. uh, one of which was with Apple Corps, the, the Beatles company. Mm-hmm. And um, he, um, I remember getting an email from him saying that he had gone in to watch some of the 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 rushes all, all the you know the raw footage that had been shot mm-hmm. back 50 years ago for the uh you know for the film let it be mm-hmm. and you know and he peter had believed as much as anyone that that the story that this had been a miserable miserable time for the beatles right. and um it was a dark period and he expected to be you know the footage to show this and yeah. the email he wrote to me said you know it just wasn't this was, you know, four guys who were having a good time. They were laughing. They were, you know, working hard together. And they obviously yeah. liked each other. And the, the misery, which he kept expecting to arrive, just sort of never arrived. I mean, there were, you know, robust discussions and moments of tension, but probably mm-hmm. no more than there had been since they were teenagers in Liverpool, you know. Right. They, they probably had bigger fights. and Absolutely. And <laughs> yes. You know, it's... Um, they it and I think that's you know something that's you know going to be a revelation to people is that these are four guys who really like each other mm-hmm. and um, they you know they they're working hard and they're coming up with great music. I mean it's not all sunshine and roses and yeah we, it's a creative process. We you know there is a mm-hmm. moment where George leaves the band, but mm-hmm. you know in truth he only he's only out of the band for like two or two or three days or something, and then he agrees to come back. And it's right. like he was just pouting, probably. Just yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, I mean, there's a great line. You know, when he does come back, the, the the very first day he comes back, and they they swap locations. They move from this very big, cold, dark Twickenham mm-hmm. film studios, right. where where they had been rehearsing because they thought they were going to do a live TV special and it was going to be there. Yeah. Um, but now the plans have changed, and they're not sure what they're going to do. But they decide to move into their own recording studio that they've just built in in the in the basement of their several row office building that they own. Right. Um, and so, you know, we get this new location and on the first day that they go to the new location, they don't let the cameras in because it's the first day George is back and they just want to be a band and work together. Sure. But the next morning, people are asking, you know, George, how it went. And he's going, went great. Uh, great vibes, man, is what he said. <laughs> and, you know, they worked till 7.30 at night and they had one right. of the best days they'd ever had. Yeah. And this is only a few days after he, you know, leaves the band and it's supposedly... Right you know, they're, they're in breakup process, but it's, it's just not true. And, um, you know, I think a lot of confusion happens because this, the film, let it be, and the album, let mm-hmm. it be, they weren't released until a year after they were recorded. They That's were released right. in, in 1970. And when they were released, it was when the Beatles were breaking up. So to a lot of the public and, you know, that the film is associated with the breakup. Yeah. But, 
you know, it was actually filmed a year before the breakup. And they went on to record another album afterwards, Abbey, Abbey Road. Road. Yeah. So, so how can the second last album be documenting their breakup, but the last album not? It's you yeah. know, it almost doesn't make sense. It's why it's an interesting time capsule, and it is. And it's funny because as I, I watched the forty minutes that Disney has has released, everybody, I didn't get to see the whole thing. D- Disney's being a little stingy about letting yeah. us see it, but that's okay. You'll get to I see mean. It. Oh man, it was so gorgeous though too. And of course, I'm watching with my mouth open, going "God!" Ah, you know? But uh, right, right, yeah. So let's talk about the context of the times first, and then we'll get back to this because it was to. It's great if you can view this with that in mind too. As opposed, there's a lot of people who are just going to see this fresh, and that's fine too. But for the people that know yeah. the history of it, let's give them a little more context for this. So, the Beatles, uh, they had the Beatles really at this point in their career. You could say were a tough act for themselves to follow yes. at this point. And I think they felt that they had, and they didn't want to just rest on their laurels and just keep doing the same things. They were constantly wanting to do something new and fresh. And that's probably what, you know, made them great, you know, Absolutely. but the way we, you know, we've been thinking about it is that, you know, Beatlemania hit in 1964 and for the next two or in three 63 years in Britain. Yeah. yeah they're, they're the biggest band in the world and they're touring. But they get sick of touring. It becomes hard and it becomes a slog. And, you know, by 1966, they decide not to play live anymore, really. And they, they go into the studio and they sort of revolutionize music making. They, yeah. you know, multi-tracking mm-hmm. and um, all these new studio techniques have just sort of become possible. And they really push it and they come up with new things and they're pioneering really in their use of uh, the studio and multi-track recording and they take much longer to make an album than people ever have before you know Sergeant Peppers is three months and so it's a wonderful new creative world for them but one of the one of the things that does occur is because they are layering up songs with you know overdubs and multi-tracks they're not playing as a band all at once you know maybe just one of them's in there recording their part at any one time Mm-hmm. And they're no longer the band that they had been in their teenage years in Liverpool and Hamburg and in the early days of, you know, of their fame. And they're starting to miss that. And so this idea is to go and do an album that can be recorded live. Yeah, they, They'll re- write these new songs that don't require overdubbing, don't require multi-tracking, and can just be played like good old-fashioned songs like they used to. And they will do a live TV special and it will be recorded live and that will be their new album. It's really is getting it's getting yeah. back to their roots. You know? Getting back to their roots. And they had uh so here's what they're trying to top, just so our audience knows. The the White album, which for Beatle fans is probably the favorite album. You yeah, know, it's mine. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a double album. How can the Beatles do better than this double album, White Album, which has all this gold on it? Yeah. You know, George Harrison comes into his own on the White Album. Absolutely, just yeah. gold, gold, gold. Yeah. And their biggest single ever, uh, besides "She Loves You," "Hey Jude." Yeah. So "Hey yeah. Jude" and the White Album. It's like we can't follow this, you guys. And uh, there's nervousness amongst the Beatles. They're in a, almost in a sedentary lifestyle. Paul is the one pushing the group whenever they need to record something. Their, their manager Brian Epstein has has passed away a couple of years yeah, ago. That's right. That's and right. you know, so they're slightly directionless. They won't let anyone else come in and boss yeah. them around. Yeah, and yeah. Paul is, 
you know, for, for, for all the best reasons, you know, trying to take the reins and give them some direction. And But it is, it's that Hey Jude moment that really sort of leads into this project because they shoot a music video for it. That's right. Yeah. Um, and it's directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg, who right. goes on to direct the footage that we're using right. for, you know, for the Let It Be film, um, which he, he releases. But when they shoot the music video for Hey Jude, they do it in the Twickenham film studio. Yeah. The same place that they've now come back to, to, and they have a crowd, a live audience come That's in right. to watch them perform. They, they surround themselves with people and they really like it. They're calling all over the Beatles too. Right? Yeah. Well, they don't necessarily <laughs> like that. And they do make a few comments in our film about next time we need to keep them back. Right, right, and right, right, maybe right. build a fence or something. Yes, but they exactly. like the they like playing to a live audience and they like playing as a band. And they, they get a real buzz out of that. And that leads to them thinking, let's do a whole album this way. Ah, and and that really is okay. what they go into this project thinking. I mean, it doesn't become that. The, you know, they they don't do a live TV special in the end. And, you know, they come up with other ideas. Well, maybe we should play overseas in some amazing location. Well, the crazy and, thing is, Jay, is they they wanted to give themselves three weeks to come up with this material and at the end of that to do the concert that's yeah. crazy first of yeah. all right yeah. crazy who's gonna come up with the material yeah. not just record it but come up with it in three weeks and then do a live concert so and i and you could see the panic on paul's face many times when he's being <laughs> asked like, about this i know they get nervous about what they've set themselves but i mean it, 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 again it shows you that they never wanted to just settle for what they've done before i mean the original idea for this live tv special mm -hmm. was to play the songs off the white album there was going to be a live tv show of the songs they'd already done oh, but by the time okay. they came to actually do it they were bored of those songs and they said oh actually we'll write new ones oh, and I they see. talk about this in our film it's it's quite interesting the, the other thing just as a side note we all call it the white album now they never called um, that true. album the White Album in any of this footage. They always refer to it as the Beatles. Yeah, well, it's called that's the, the Beatles. Only words on the album. That's the, yeah, it's called the Beatles. Yeah. yeah, right. So I think I think it's us, the public, that have named it the White Album retrospectively. But the Beatles never saw it that way, you know, at the time. And it gets a little confusing, you know, because they'll have a conversation and they'll say something like, "Well, it's like what we did on the Beatles." Blah blah blah, and I'm thinking, what you did on the Beatles? You are the Beatles. Like, oh no, yeah. you're meaning the White Album. Yeah, yeah. It really has more of a satirical tone when they say the Beatles. You know, yeah, yeah. Like that's like they almost like how did they? What do they think of that album exactly? You know, well, I, I always see it as you know, if you go back to Sergeant Pepper's, Sergeant Pepper yeah. had the most complicated cover image of all Completely. time. You know, right. would have taken months to design, a lot of work. Yeah. But, you know, they were the biggest band in the world. And maybe they just wanted to prove the fact that we don't need to spend that time designing yes. a cover. We could go with a blank cover. Yes. No title for the album whatsoever. Damn. And it will still be great. And it fucking worked. It, it worked does. It too. does. And it, I, that's that's why it's classic, too. That thing just, yeah. it's just still classic, you know. Yeah, no, it's great. So. So they, they want to do this ambitious thing and they realize we can't do this shit. What are we thinking? You know, and in the middle of it, and that's what Michael Lindsay Hogg there is pretty much, he's really going to have supplemental material for this TV special they're thinking. Yeah. Right? I think originally he was going to do a little documentary that would air before the live TV concert. It wasn't very ambitious from the beginning. He just wanted to make sure he had no, enough material no, to, it was to for show. TV and yeah. Yeah. 
And so, but then it turns when they go to Seville Row and in the Apple basement designed by Magic Alex or whoever that yes. was, you know. And a uh, great story there, too. Oh, please tell me. Let's. Uh, oh, no, no, no. I mean, the whole Magic Alex story is a crazy. great story, but that should be it a movie. It probably deserves its own documentary. It deserves a movie, at least. Yeah, Magic Alex. Yeah, sure. yeah. But for those of you beetle fans, you know we're talking about Magic Alex. So we, won't, we won't explain yes. right now. But uh, <laughs> yes, look it up. That's right. So. They, so when do they get the idea that maybe this should be something else, or does does that idea come after everything is done later, or when they go to the Apple Studios, do they think, well, maybe we should uh, let Michael just do more of a documentary here? Was the idea uh, born then? Yeah, it's well that that whole thing is is almost the narrative core of our three part get back movie on disney plus that that seeing the (laughs) them debate and change their opinion on what it is they're doing um you know they as i say they start off with this idea of doing a live tv special from twickenham but immediately you see them debating well maybe we should do a show overseas and they have these amazing ideas like we'll go to the ancient ruined amphitheater in zabratha libya um which is an incredible location and we'll do a show there. And then it's like, well, if we have an audience from Libya, they won't speak English and they won't know what we're singing because none of the songs we're going to sing, they will have heard before because they're all new. Um, (laughs) It's like, well, okay, well then we'll we'll bring an audience with us from England and they go, we'll hire a boat. We'll hire the the QE2 ocean liner and we'll, we'll, we'll ship everyone in. And, um, and And it's like, and then we can play to them on the boat. And, and George, who's always very practical, says, then we'll be trapped with a boatload of Beatles fans for two oh, weeks. Oh, I love and we George. we won't be able to get away from them. At least here we can go home. That's it's, fantastic. Yeah, so they have amazing ideas. They, they, you know, they think they'll play in orphanages for sick children or they'll, mm. um, they, they will, you know, play um, at the cavern back in Liverpool or in the Houses of Parliament. They, all these things are discussed and rejected and you, you, you can see it sort of goes in circles and some of them mm-hmm. are keen and some aren't, but, you know, it's, it's often been said that, you know, after George leaves the band that he only agrees to come back if the idea of a live show is dropped. But we mm-hmm. now know that's not true because we've got the footage of George once he's come back asking, are we still doing a live show? <laughs> Although, as we know human nature, he probably did say that, but being being the Beatle that he was, he conveniently acts like he didn't say it. Yeah, yeah and, well, and it's obviously it, the idea hasn't been dropped because they're still discussing, I right. think at that point, they're thinking of doing it on Primrose Hill, which is a, a hill in London, in the middle of London that overlooks the, the city. Right. Um so it, it obviously he hasn't put his foot down as people think he, he did. Um, and, and, you know, and we end up in the situation where they run out of time, all the ideas fall away. They don't have any more time and they don't know what they're going to do. And Paul's a bit depressed because it seems they're just now going to make another album like they always do. Mm. And he wanted to do something different. And suddenly they have this idea, well, you know, we could just play them up on the roof. You know, we'll just walk upstairs. <laughs> right. Which, which I think is a, a fabulous, you know, sort of lazy solution to it. You know, they they were going to go to Africa and do a live show, but nah, too much effort. We'll just walk upstairs. It is amazing because it is it uh, it serves kind of as two purposes. It uh, 
I think uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg was searching for an ending to the an documentary. Ending for his film. Yeah, he's yeah. like, how's this going to end? And so he yeah. instinctively knows the performance is the, how you end something like this. And for, you know, the Beatles themselves, of course, it is the natural end, you know, in many ways, too. And metaphorically, it becomes the end. It becomes know? the end. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they didn't know that at the time, even after they they finished the rooftop performance they're saying things like well this could be a great dress rehearsal for a bigger show you know right they're thinking we're just oh this is great we're performing again maybe we'll it's all going to carry on yeah 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 yeah. they they haven't decided that this is their swan song and this is how they're going to go out you know the 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 rumors that you know this is capturing the breakup period of the beatles are just you know totally incorrect i want to talk about i want to get back to that part but i want to talk about some of the technical aspects of it being the editor of it uh so when you guys are first starting, there are many problems you have to face from a technical standpoint, right? And the first one is mm. just the restoration of the film. And for those that never saw the original Let It Be, I believe it was shot in 16 millimeter and blown up to 35, which presents a bit of a yes. problem because it gives it almost a washed out grainy look. And yes. it actually, from the beginning, made it metaphorically feel washed out like the Beatles were washed up in some ways you know so it kind of lent to the whole to me the the mythology of what this film is and of it being a miserable yeah yeah and I feel by restoring it it kind of tells a different story in the restoration itself yes we we had a bit of the brightness back to the images right exactly (laughs) were you the uh, the colorful costumes so there were a lot of uh, challenges to for you as an editor. Right? Can you talk about some of those, like some of the audio problems and uh, yeah, and, and just technical problems before you could even start sure. editing? What were the challenges? You know, <laughs> one one of the challenges was that you know, as, as you say, it was shot on sixteen millimeter because it was originally just going to be for television, right? And they actually discussed this, and we have you know the, the scenes in our film where they say, you know, we shot on 16 mil because it was for television. Now we're going to have it in the cinema. We should have shot it on 35 mil or 70 mil because that's better quality. But we're going to have to try blowing this up. And they, they actually, the Beatles start to become post-production experts and they debate amongst themselves how well it will blow up, um, which is quite amusing. But, you know, uh, amongst the problems we faced was that the two cameras they were shooting with didn't run in perfect sync to each other or to the separate audio that was being recorded. So we've had to do a lot of, you know, re-speeding the audio slightly to keep things in sync, which works fine for one camera, but it puts the other camera out of sync if they're shooting at the same time. So a very technical process to get all that working. But one of the, the interesting breakthroughs we had, and really only in the last year or even six months, is that, all this audio is being recorded on mono tapes by the right. film crew, uh-huh. um, which is separate to the audio being recorded for the actual album. You know, that's recorded on eight track, you know, proper um, audio recording equipment in the control room. But the documentary crew themselves. Yeah, let's make that distinction clear because people's heads yeah. can explode because that is different. Yes. And and I want to know which one was on the album. There's audio that's going all the time that's meant to be like fly on the wall, right? That's right. For the film. And that's just on a, film. on a simple recording device. Yeah. Is that what it is? And then there's very expensive eight track tape that's only recording when they're performing a performance of the songs okay. that they Got think it. might be good enough to go on the album. 
So they want to make sure they have a quality recording of the songs. Yeah. But when they're That's just right. messing around, they're like, we're not really. Yeah, and take they this. don't record that. And but the documentary crew want to keep recording, so they use got their it. little monotapes. Now, but because they're monotapes, all everything's recorded and mixed together, and you can't divide it up. So right. you might have a conversation you're wanting to hear, but it might be being drowned out by someone tuning their guitar or moving some equipment around, or the crew also having their own conversation. And Ugh. so a lot of the audio is very messy and hard to hear. But the breakthrough that we've we've had is um, with through artificial intelligence software, mm-hmm. machine mm-hmm. learning. We've been able to build um, systems, and then our, you know, and the team's very clever who do this. And I'll, I'll probably mess up the explanation. That's all right. But That's all right. The end result, the end result is we can take what was mixed together messy audio and separate it out into its components. So we can really? we can extract John and and Paul having a conversation and remove the guitars that previously drowned them out and you couldn't hear what they were saying. So the so, AI knows when yeah, John and George are talking. We, we we feed the AI software hours and hours of Paul McCartney talking, so it can <laughs> learn what Paul McCartney <laughs> sounds like, and so it, it can actually in the end separate Paul from John and and move wow. you know, and separate them out too. It's it's incredible. It's um. Or what, you know, so we've been training it on all the Beatles voices, you know, and one of the most useful things to do with it then is to say, just keep Beatles dialogue. If it's a crew member or if it's someone else or if it's a, it's a guitar, you know, get rid of it. We just want to hear what the Beatles are saying. And wow. it's, it's fascinating. And I, I wouldn't have believed it was possible, but um, and it's allowing us to remix the songs, too, that were recorded oh. only on these mono documentary um, mm-hmm. sound tapes. Um, they, they might have a great recording of a song, but because it wasn't being performed properly and mixed properly, right. maybe the drums are too loud or the bass guitar's too loud. But we can now separate all these instruments out. That's and crazy. Remix, and remix the song. It's uh, it's yeah, incredible. Well, this is revolutionary for recording in general. You could go back yes. to some Sinatra recordings or things like that. Well, it's a, you know, it's been talked about possibly for you know early Beatles recordings where they were just recorded mono, and yes. you know maybe something can be done. You know, although some of those mono recordings are fantastic, though the mono mixes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, there's always the opportunity to see what can be done with them. You know. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. What were some of the conversations that you and Peter Jackson, and let's give some insight maybe for our audience, like what does an editor and a director, what do they talk about at the beginning of the process? Does he lay out a vision or is this, when you're doing a documentary, I assume it's maybe a little different because you're both yes. going to be finding this probably in a documentary. That's right. right. When, when we're working on a normal, you know, uh, fiction feature film, we have the advantage of the script that exists that we can follow. And um, 
you know all the all the footage is shot by the director so there's an there's an understanding of what was intended and what is there mm-hmm. with this we have no script so we're having to just watch all the footage that was shot 50 years ago and you know everything that comes up is a surprise and is unknown and we have to look for the story we have to look for what mm. story we want to tell what we want to include and not include and it's a long process because they shot so much footage and um you know we would go through it all once you know and make selects of what we think the best scenes are and the best moments but and then we'd start to edit that and see what we have and but you'd always have to go back again because you might something that might seem unimportant the first time you go through the footage you realize months later is actually a setup for something that then pays off a few days later like somebody might say a line of dialogue that later gets used as a as a lyric or something yeah and you know you want to you realize oh we're telling this story now we're telling this story so we've got to go back and see if there was anything about that story that we ignored the first time and did you guys watch the original to have it in your head first or did you just think no we don't want that in our head well let's just let's just let's see what we have here and then if we need to reference exactly. that exactly we, we, we okay we wanted to treat this as a fresh thing and also the making of the original film and all the work that Michael Lindsay Hogg and his and his team did is part of our story right. we're as much telling the story of the making of that film and you know the the, the you know their characters in our film that their, their whole film crew um and so we wanted to sort of be a bit more of an objective overview of the whole month. And so people should know that, that this is not like a a reimagining of Let It Be. This is no. more of a, a behind the scenes of a behind the scenes. Yeah, that's right. It's, the, <laughs> yeah. it's trying to look at the entire month of January 1969 and, um, and see, see what happened. Were you intimidated at first by the amount of material that you had to go through? Yes, yes. But, you know, one thing that made it easier is we do tell the story in a linear chronological fashion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was 21 days of footage shot. Um, We we see the project as lasting 22 days, but on one of those days, they didn't allow the the film crew into the building. Um, So we got 21 days of footage and we would just deal with it day at a time. You know, there there might be 10 hours of footage, Mm -hmm. which would be, you know, uh, mainly audio. And then five, you know, maybe five hours of picture. Um, I mean, these numbers changed day to day. And, and we would have to just go through it all and, you know, and cut everything that was interesting. But the great thing is once you'd spent a few weeks cutting one day, when you moved on to another day, it was a fresh start. You, you know, you were back to square one because it was very hard. You wouldn't be able to move the footage between days very easily because they're all wearing different clothes every day. And um, <laughs> so we, we, you know, we were, we were able to limit ourselves to one day at a time, which, which really helped. I read uh, that your first uh, editor's assembly was like 17 hours yeah. long. Yeah. Like, right. Does that something, does Peter watch that 17 hours or well, yeah, do you, do you just say, uh, run, Peter, but... yeah, I'm working on some stuff. Uh, <laughs> and how can how can I see that seventeen hours? Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Well, but that was that's the total length. But of course, it's not like I just presented as one seventeen-hour cut to him. We're, right, right, right. You know, it's it's five minutes at a time, and sure, then you know, sure. um, once we get to the end, it's like how you know how long is this? Thing? It's like, oh, it's seventeen <laughs> right. hours. Oops, sorry. Yeah. We did 
go back then and start working through the days and just, yeah. you know, fine tuning it and cutting it down. And, uh, you know, originally we thought we were just going to be one feature film released in cinemas. So we were going to have to cut it down a lot more, but, um, luckily now it's, uh, it's a three-part series. And who made that decision? Was that a Disney Plus decision? Well, did, did Peter feel it, like, guys, I can't tell this story in this amount of time? Yeah. No, it, it was, you know, it was it was probably largely to do with the COVID of the situation. Mm. Um, you know, when we started on this, we, we had never heard the term COVID-19. And, right. yeah. um, and so things changed. And you know, at certain points, you know, we, we might not be so bad now, but there were certain points where it looked like nobody would go to a cinema yeah. um, and decisions had to be made. So at some point it was decided that it's probably best just to put it on streaming on Disney Plus. And at that point, a lot of the limitations are slightly removed because you don't, you know, the duration doesn't have to be quite as exact on a streaming service you know on broadcast television you have to fit a a narrow window that you've been given and in a cinema you've got to can't be too long people don't want to sit there uh yeah. for, forever and you know you've got other sessions you've got to have but when you're at home watching disney plus people can you know pause if they wish <laughs> uh, we're not making them watch it all in one go and because it is as i say a linear chronological telling of the story we tell it one day at a time and they almost work as chapters. So mm -hmm. people will be free just to watch a couple of days and pause and come back the next day to watch some more. Can you also share with us, uh, this is kind of a creative question, I guess. What's, what's the chief way that you and Peter make decisions about what stays, what doesn't go because there's so much material and yeah. uh, many of it you might think could be valid, but is it once you get a, it's like you haven't so much in the beginning, but once you get a sense of the story, is that when things yes. get plucked it out? Is, it's the story that always leads. Um, you know, if something's not adding to the story, it's going to be the first thing to go. I mean, in this case, it was a little bit of a balance between trying to tell the various narrative strands that we had. Like mm -hmm. one of the big ones is trying to, you know, the Beatles trying to decide what they're going to do. You know, are they going to do a live show or just an album? Where are they going to do the show? That's a major thread. Um, and the other is the story of some of these songs themselves, the creation right. of these songs and the development of them and how they progress. And, you know, like the, the song Get Back, you know, we see its initial conception. We see yeah. Paul coming up with the, the hook and the idea. it comes out of nothing, really. Yeah. And then over the, the next few weeks, it becomes the song that we know. And so it's nice to see the progress of these songs. I mean, we don't want to show you know some of these songs were rehearsed you know over 60 times over this month and we, you know people aren't going to want to see every yeah. single rehearsal but we try and show the important ones the ones that show progress the ones that are entertaining and you know eventually we you know we we don't show the entire song after a while because people would get you know bored of seeing <laughs> the, the, the entire song yeah. every single time it's played you know so yeah the bits of it, it gets shorter and um, we mm -hmm. get braver at, you know, jump cutting things. And, um, but yeah, so it's the, it's the story of the music and it's the story of the Beatles and it's the story of them deciding, you know, what they're going to do and who they are. And we have this drama of George leaving for a while and then coming back and, and, you know, it's, it's going to be fascinating for people. I think there's, there's so many more characters than just the Beatles as well. You know, right. the whole crew that were there are, 
there's a lot of characters amongst them and they're very entertaining. Yeah, the other George that of course is fascinating and also called the Six Feet is George Martin. And yeah, you know, it's interesting to watch this knowing what's about to come for Beatle fans, knowing that George is kind of on a thin thread here, it seems like in some ways. You know, but and you see their relationship Sometimes he was like schoolmaster to the Beatles, sometimes yeah. straight up collaborator. And we know that after this, they do Abbey Road, but then yeah. Let It Be just kind of, you know, gets into the hands yeah. of Phil Spector, who gets to do That's right. Well, in the, years, in the years following, George Martin always spoke quite negatively about he this uh, project. And he always claimed he wasn't really there and, um, you know, he didn't have much to do with it. Um, I think probably a lot of his later opinion was tainted by the fact that the tapes were given to Phil Spector to remix. Yeah, because he's clearly but, you know, there. Phil Spector's not part of our film. Yeah. He's not. He doesn't come into this until months and months later. Yeah. So I think George Martin was probably misremembering to some extent. You know, he, his, yeah. his memory was probably tainted by what happened later. Yeah. And you see him in our film. He's there every day. I was surprised. He's doing a lot. He's working really well with Glyn Johns. They have a lot of mutual respect and admiration for each other, and they joke around together. And George Martin is there. He's he's solving problems for the Beatles. He's laughing with them. As I say, he's there every day, and he looks like he's having a good time, you know. So I think the misery of the project came later. It wasn't there during the recording. Yeah, it is. And the Beatles' orbit is fascinating. Another person in the Beatles' orbit is Glenn Johns, who you just mentioned, who yes. arguably may have given the album concept idea with uh, with his version of Get Back at the time, which uh, he kind of sure. pitched the idea to the Beatles. Is any of that yeah. in the film, of him talking about that? Absolutely. There's a couple of great moments of Glenn really um, creatively impacting some of the songs, including Let It Be. He's there oh, suggesting wow. arrangements to Paul, and they oh, begin. Wow. The other Beatles begin to joke about it. Because, <laughs> you know, Paul starts taking Glenn's suggestions quite seriously, and then he says, um, "And then Paul turns to John and says, well, I was thinking.'" And John corrects him and goes, "Glenn and I were thinking." Oh, that's and, great! That's and great. They all laugh, and Glenn, Glenn acts very embarrassed. And there's a couple of great moments where Glenn improves songs and um, wow. suggests, yeah. you know, he suggests, "Now you sing that first line on your own, then the two of you do this one, and then all three of you come in on this one." And he's, you know, he's really great, and he's not afraid to suggest yeah. his opinion. And I, I think, you know, there's going to be a couple of people in the background of this project who get rediscovered. Yes. And I wouldn't be surprised to see articles and interviews happen with Glenn. Um, yeah. And the, the other That's person awesome. is um, Mal Evans, I think, will be rediscovered, the, the Beatles' assistant. Yeah. He's, you know, he's a great presence in this, and um, I think people are really going to like him. Yeah, because before Mal is in Let It Be, he's relegated to looking like he's just ringing the bell to Maxwell Silverhammer, and that's, and that's all he had to do. We, yeah. we have a lot of footage of him with his, he's actually got the hammer, and a little silver hammer sometimes, and he taps the anvil, and he takes great pride in that. You know, he's the fifth member of the Beatles Absolutely. while that song's playing. And um, I actually really like the version of Maxwell's that we hear in our film because on the released version, John wasn't part of it. He was recovering from a a car accident he had had, whereas he's part of this version. And he and George add a great uh, whistling section to the song, which Mm -hmm. isn't in the final release either. And it is really nice and it makes it quite different. But um, yeah, I think, you know, people will be 
surprised that um that's great because you know, mal was an og he'd been with the beatles for so long you know yeah. he'd seen everything yeah uh you talk about yeah just a member of the crew that's just you know yeah thick and yeah. thin and and i think the other the other person who's going to get who re-examined and rediscovered is billy preston yeah i was just going to bring him up yes yeah the keyboard player who <sighs> brought in i mean he's amazing oh billy preston nothing from nothing leave nothing yeah, and you can see how much he lifts the Beatles. I mean, they yeah. say it to him. John says, you're giving us a lift, Bill. We've been playing this stuff for days. They were impressed by Billy Preston, yeah. And John says things like, you know, um, that's it. You're in the band. You're in the band, Bill. Yeah. You know, and, he, and John literally says to the other Beatles when Billy's not there, I want him to join the band. I want him to be the fifth Beatle. Wow. And, I mean, can you admit, you know, that's just... Of all the compliments, you know, John could play a, pay someone. It's just incredible. I think Billy Preston is the only person who collaborated with the Beatles yes. that actually got credit for it. Yes, by the Beatles and Billy Preston is like the Get Back single was credited that way. Yeah, and people, you know, might remember him from the Rooftop concert. But mm. I, I, what I didn't realize, and I, you know, I guess it is known, is that he stuck around and he also played on Abbey Road. You know, mm-hmm. he. But, but you can see how much they love him and how much they respect him is the is the really big thing. You know, he comes in and they're like, well, maybe we should give Billy some tapes of what we've been doing so he can learn the parts. Uh-huh. And George says, he'll pick it up. He'll, <laughs> yes, he'll, exactly. he'll just, and he does. Instantly, he's adding things to the song. Yeah. He needs no, he needs no practice. He just, he's away. He, he listens to what they're doing. He adds to it and he improves it. It's great. He, now, yeah. And the Beatles... A lot of people don't realize, like, they loved the black performers that they met early in their careers. People, of course, Fats Domino, they admired. Uh, they had toured with some performers and things. Yeah. And Billy Preston was kind of in that category for them. They knew Billy from Hamburg, where he was the keyboard player for Little Richard. Right, that's he right. He was yeah. performing in Hamburg. And Billy was only, like, 16 at the time. Yeah, he was a kid. And yeah. it, said, it said that the Beatles became friends with him in Hamburg and took him under their wing. Well, I, I don't know how healthy a thing that would have been for a 16-year-old Billy in, in the red light district of Hamburg. If you know anything about Billy's life afterwards, you know, uh, I think he was open to everything. That's right. Just, uh... But when he walks into Savile Row, the, the Beatles are just all over him. They're, wow. hanging, they're, they just, they're so excited to see him again. And, you know, um, and the, the lift in the performance once he's there, it's just incredible. And, it's um, such an amazing energy. Yeah, and you hear John. John gets so excited. He's telling the director, now that we've got Billy, we can do this song and this song. And, and the director, Michael Lindsay Hogg's like, oh, is Billy going to stay with you? Yeah, he's the man. He's going to be, you know, he's, he's going to be part of it. Normally, they overdub right. um, instruments if they're missing them. Like, if they wanted a piano in a song and a bass guitar and, and, and a lead guitar and a rhythm guitar, and drums well that's five instruments and there's only four of them so one of them would have to be overdubbed and that's what they've been doing for years and now they have this problem that there's only four of them and what are we going to do about the keyboards if paul if paul plays the piano then who's going to play the bass if it's john playing the bass who's going to play rhythm guitar and they have several conversations leading up to the day that billy arrives saying we need we need someone else maybe we could hire a session musician Mm -hmm. to play keyboards for us and, you know, they're thinking these things through. And then Billy really just drops by to say hi. Um, again, there's a, there's a legend that, um, that George brought him in to improve the behavior of everyone. But you can see that that's not no, true. Not they're, true. They're all yeah. in great 
platform before Billy gets there. And the other thing that gets misremembered by, by, by the Beatles and other people is there's a belief that Billy was in town playing with Ray Charles and George went to see the concert and said, come on by. Mm -hmm. Well, the Ray Charles concert was actually like six months earlier in 1968. And Billy had gone back home and was back in London for actually two television performances where he was playing on some variety shows. He was performing some of his, his songs. Oh, okay. um, so he wasn't there with Ray Charles at this time. And George hadn't just been to the concert. He'd been to the concert months ago. Yeah. And um, Billy just drops by really just to say hi. Wow. And and John had been thinking we need an extra person and just grabs him and says, look, we want to play all these songs live. We don't want to do any overdubbing like we usually do. So we're playing them live. And that means having someone in on keyboards. What are you doing for the next few weeks? Right. You know, are you available? And, um, yeah, you know, we see, and, you know, there's a later point where Paul, yeah, a couple of days later, Paul leans over to Billy very casually and says, has anyone actually asked you if you mind coming in every day? <laughs> I just wanted to check someone's talked to you about oh, it. Oh, that's great. Man, so much great stuff. Yeah, you know, it's if... all in there. It's all in our film. But yeah, I just came away with such respect for Billy because yeah, yeah, because yeah. of how much the Beatles respected him. Yes. I mean, as soon as he's there, George is like, what's this chord called, Billy? Oh, and what's this chord? I've been playing this one later. What's this? Can you tell me about this one? Yeah. You know, and he's just the, the the knowledge for them about keyboards and you know, and then but if someone else is on the piano, Billy will pick up the bass guitar and, right. and you, he just plays every instrument. And at one point, Paul's thinking of adding strings onto um long and winding road and he leans over to billy and says to billy do you play violin <laughs> and billy billy shakes his head and he goes no i don't play the violin like ah, oh. <laughs> i love the foreshadowing of that you know yeah they were they were hoping that billy could do everything but you know it, it kind of you know if you're a Beatles fan like me like this was the way the beatles could have continued with like guest artists for yes. concerts you know, because you're absolutely right. And they would have been fantastic doing that, you know, uh, and continued to probably create music if they had had that type of thing. The other thing you see in our film is the other way they could have continued is by doing less albums and yeah. by doing their own solo projects in between Beatles albums. And, and we have a great discussion yeah. where George talks to John about, I've got all these songs I've been writing and based on the the allotment that I get on every Beatles album, it's going to take me 20 <laughs> years to get through all my songs. Right. So I'm thinking of just going and recording my own solo album. And John says, that's great. We'd really support that. That'd be amazing. And he's really supportive yeah. of George doing this. And he really builds George up with the idea. And George says, and that might keep, that might keep this thing, this Beatles thing going longer too. Yeah. Because if we, we can all go away and do our own things, get that out of our system and then we come back every now and then and do a Beatles album and you know and if they hadn't if, you know if the if the legal wranglings and the Alan Kleins of it all yeah. hadn't gotten the way and broken things up over the next year that could have been a way the Beatles continued you know maybe just doing one album every year or two and doing lots of solo projects would have been fine but, you know who, who knows what could have happened who knows? The other uh, reimagining, I'll say, and the person that gets a nice update is Yoko Ono, uh, yes. who, who at the yeah. time was called the person who broke up the Beatles and all this. And it's interesting oh, sure. that in the film, they actually make fun of that in the film itself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Paul, 
you see Paul's Paul saying Yoko's not the problem. She said he says literally says she's not that bad. It's not yeah. you know she's all right. He says and he's very understanding of Yoko being there more so than probably people who have nothing to do with it. <laughs> you know were yeah because the the fans they all thought that Yoko was there amongst the Beatles and there was all this tension. But the fact is there were plenty of people there. Linda was hanging around there. Were yeah. All I mean, kinds of people were hanging around. Yeah. There. And they, they have a discussion about it and it's, you know, they, they have their issues, you know, if, if they have a business meeting and Yoko comes along, they, they were mentioning that she did a lot of the talking for John and things, and they have issues with this, but that's where Paul says, but she's not really a problem, you know, that's, and he says, we have a line in our film where he says, It'll be very funny if in 50 years' time people think we broke up because of Yoko. You know, he says it because mm. John brought a girl along and she sat on an amp, you know, and he says it's just not the case. You know, there's no big fights. And um, I, I, I came away with, a, you know, a lot more, well, a lot of respect for Yoko in this process and that she doesn't talk very much on camera. If the cameras are running, she just keeps quiet. And I think she's doing that sort of respectfully mm-hmm. because she knows this is about the Beatles and she just lets them get on with their thing. She wants to be there and be around John, but he's at work. And so she just tends to keep quiet while the cameras are running. But there's a couple of moments where she does speak. And I think they're very positive and they're telling. One is after George has left, and he, he's left the band and, and, they, and Paul and John and Yoko and Ringo are talking and they decide, okay, let's go talk to George. Let's talk him back into the band. Let's apologize and get him back here. And Paul's all revved up and he's ready to go. And he says, let's go around to his place now. And then Ringo steps away to talk to Mel and he comes back and Ringo says, actually, George has gone back to Liverpool. He's gone back home to his parents' place. Hmm. And you can see that this hits Paul like a ton of bricks because mm. Paul thought this was just a minor little problem that George had got tired and, and that they were just going to be able to whip around to his place and talk him back in. And this wasn't going to be an issue. And then, but to learn that George has actually gone back to Liverpool, Paul realizes, oh my God, he's actually serious about leaving the band. He's, you know, he's gone back to Liverpool. He's not even in town. And you can see Paul looks stunned and Paul doesn't know what to say. And he's sitting there not saying anything. And and Ringo says, yeah, he's going to be back on, on Thursday. And Paul's just stunned. It's has changed, entirely changed his outlook on what's happening. And then nobody says anything. And then Yoko says to Paul, that's okay. That just means Thursday's the day we go see him. And she's really attempting to to calm Paul down and to bring him back and to tell him, it's all right, this doesn't mean the band's over. It just means we're going to delay talking to George a day or two. It's all right, Paul. Everything can be okay still. And I thought that was really generous of her because no one else knew what to say. (laughs) Everyone else was silent. And she stepped up and tried to to make it okay. And to me, that was really nice. And there was another moment much later where Paul is, again, a little depressed about how the project's gone because he was wanting to do this amazing live show somewhere and not just make another album like they always do. And he's a little down. He's not too down, but he, you know, the others are trying to talk about it with him. And he says, look, I, 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 you know, I don't really know what I want or what I'm depressed about. And someone says, um, and I think it's Glenn. Glenn John says, well, I don't know what you're depressed about either because the last few days have gone really well. And Yoko speaks up and goes, they've gone, they they have, they're great. They're really amazing. You know, she really tries to perk Paul up 
and and convince them that everything's going really well and how wonder and tell them how wonderful she thinks the work they're doing is mm -hmm. and to, to me those both those moments are very generous moments where she's yeah. really trying to help paul it's not her just talking to john but you know paul's the one who's been down and she really you know tries to help him um and I, you know i think that there's great moments like that all through our film because you know it's so long, there has to be great moments. No, and I love it because so many of the attacks on Yoko's, I felt some were racist, some were sexist. Oh, definitely. Especially, especially at the time, you know, and John and Yoko, you know, for the time, they kind of had an equal relationship, which didn't sit well Very with a lot of people. So, yeah. It's like, why is this woman having so much to say? You know, what kind of a man is that, you know? <laughs> Yeah, John didn't care though. John, he didn't John care. Didn't care. I mean, he he says like he says he doesn't mind bad press, but he says in our film the one thing that gets to him is when the press go after her. Yeah, and he thinks that's unfair and that's the thing that bothers him. Um, but he's making they're making a book. You know, he's collected all the press cuttings about them for the last year, mm -hmm. and he's going to publish them all in a book. And he says, "I'm going to call it the Book of Lies." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that scene where the Beatles are reading their bad press too. I think yes. it's very cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just shows you how untrue it was. You know, it's yeah. this article telling how unhappier they are and how they don't like each other anymore, yeah. and they read it out to each other, laughing. Yes, yes. You know, it's... oh, apparently this is going on here. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing that could refute it more than their reaction to it yeah uh and also uh i would say the biggest makeover in all of this arguably is paul mccartney you know yeah because at the time mccartney was the villain of the beatles to a lot yeah. of people you know for the breakup and that yeah i mean well again this is as we're now learning this is before the breakup and this is you know um but you know, as of, at, at the timing of the film of Let It Be, in the, the original... release of the film, he was the villain, and so people look at that through, through those lenses. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened, you guys, is when Paul McCartney announced he had a single album, his own album called mm. McCartney, and at the yeah. same time, it was announced that the Beatles were breaking up, and so it looked like Paul broke yeah. up the Beatles to put out his own album. Well, he he was the first person to announce that they weren't going to work together again. I mean, he confirmed it. really historically now, I, I think we know John was the one to say I'm out first. That's right. But when he said that he was asked particularly by Alan Klein, not to say it publicly. Right. Um, and so by the time it was said publicly, it was Paul who said it. So he got a lot of the blame, but you see, he's holding this project together. I mean, he really is. Manager yeah. Brian Epstein's no longer with, uh, with them. You know, he's passed away and Paul wants them to keep making music and doing new things. And um, he's the one that, you know, pulls it together and, and drives the project forward. And some people see that as bossy, but it's like, if, you know, it's really just trying to get, get them to do something. You know, he's he, the necessary engine, you yeah, know, to keep yeah. that going. And what's fascinating to me is that this surprised Paul himself, yes. <laughs> you know, yes. where Paul had yeah. believed the hype yeah. that he was the villain yeah. and that there was all this negative stuff. I know. I, I think it's very hard to remember accurately 50 years ago. And there's been so much said and so many articles yeah. and so many misrememberings that it, that does, you know, that affects your own memory. What did that mean to, to, to uh, you guys that, that, that positive reaction from McCartney did that? What oh, did that it's mean great. You? you know, him and Ringo, you know, showing them footage and, you know, seeing their reaction. It's, it's amazing, you know, and um, it's just been great to be able to share it with them. Um, yeah, it's pretty special. It's so awesome. Uh, 
Whew, man, there's so much to talk about, man. Uh, yeah. This is just so great. I've, before I let you go, I have to ask you this because the last part, of, and like I said, I haven't seen it, but I imagine this has to be the last part, is also I'm taking it for granted, but now I realize what you guys have done. You show the complete 42-minute rooftop yes. concert, which I believe has not been seen, right? So, not, not the complete thing. Not no. the complete. So this is my point. You, yeah. sir got to edit and put together the yep. Beatles final live concert that yep. had not been seen in its entirety. I mean, no, what does that feel like? That's in your hands, mister. Yeah, You're well, giving it. Was great. A- <laughs> it's great. You know, and I do think it's the best opportunity people have now to experience what the Beatles were like playing live. Yeah. And, you know, there was a lot of thoughts because they were recording they were playing on the roof, not just for a live show as a stunt for the film, but also to record these tracks live for, for use on the album. And several of the, the tracks on Let It Be, well, I think three of them, were from the performance on the rooftop. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were feeding everything they were playing down the cables, down to the basement control room where they were all being recorded professionally by, by Glenn and George. And um, it's it's interesting because they were doing that, they they repeated some of the songs, right? You know, I think get back gets played three times. Yeah. Now, when we were looking at doing this, we were thinking, does anybody want to see a concert where a song gets played more than once? Maybe we should just pick the best version of each song and just have that. But we realized when we looked at it, it doesn't matter. It's every performance is different. There's all sorts of other things going on. Um, and it's just, you sort of don't even notice that songs have been repeated. I mean, there's not too many that get repeated. Um, and it really doesn't matter. And people, there's no wow. complaints at all that you that you hear Get Back twice, back to back the first time. And in fact, the third time they play Get Back is fantastic because they're only playing it to annoy the police officers <laughs> who are up there by then. Get and Back! Who, who, who you can tell expect them to stop after the song before. So they just That's burst hilarious. once more into Get Back for one final time. Yeah. That's great. Uh, any uh, any fond things, anything that really surprised you about this? Or, uh... Well, it's probably too many to recall. It's uh, There were surprises every day. And... Um, I think, you know, I think people will be surprised when they Mm -hmm. watch it. I think, you know, no matter how much you think you know about the Beatles or, uh, you know, even if you think you have no particular interest in the Beatles, I think you'll be surprised either way um, that there's something you'll take away from this. I mean, one of the things that was most reassuring for me was that these geniuses who I hold up on a pedestal, their creative process was just like any of ours. I mean, they didn't come in with these great works of art or, you know, carved mm-hmm. in stone. They had to layer them up, iterate on them, try different things, try them again, work with each other, um, make them better a little bit at a time every time they played them. And, you know, that was very reassuring that even geniuses need a cre- the creative process of, of putting the effort in, you know. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, so it, it was great, you know, because... It's it's what we should all do is you know never never give up. If, if these guys can put so much hard work into their wonderful songs yeah. and make them better, mm-hmm. then we should all do that with our own stuff. That's right. Well, Javis, so thank you so much for being a thank part you. of Black on the Air. Like I said, this is a special episode. It's a gorgeous, right. gorgeous film. Your your work. 
I can't wait till you see the whole thing. I can't wait too. I'm already a fan of your work, you know, so I know I'm cool. just going to enjoy it. Oh, thank you. And uh, everybody, Thanks, get back. It's coming to Disney Plus. See, I think Thanksgiving here in America is when it opens. Thanksgiving to... for the first episode, and then the second, the night after, and the third, one night after that. So three nights in a row. Three nights in a row. And meanwhile, yeah. we'll be looking out for your future projects, my friend. It's so great, great. talking to you. Thanks thank so you. much. Thanks, Larry. And, uh, I uh, hope you hope everything's going great. And I hope we pass the audition. There you go. Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you, my friend. 